Welcome to Zeitgeist with Zeitgeist. I'm your host, Zeitgeist. My podcast channel is dedicated to exploring ways of being in the world that brings us as human beings into harmony with ourselves, community, the living planet, and hopefully to something numinous. My hope is that by listening to this podcast, you will discover other people, ideas, practices, and states of being that could potentially transform your life. My intention is that what you will hear and learn will contribute in some way towards living a life less controlled by dogma that is instead guided by love, beauty, and compassion for all living beings. This channel is sponsored by one of my companies, Student Loan Tutor, where we help liberate our clients from debt so that they can share their gifts more freely with the world. In this episode, I speak with Derek Tennant. We speak about the effects that the coronavirus is having on the economy for the majority of the population in the United States. Derek has worked with Lynn Twist, The Soul of Money, and helps people transform their relationship with money and earns his livelihood working in what is called the spirit of the gift. We speak about why one would want to work in the spirit of the gift and the reconnection people experience when offering their gifts to the world in this spirit. Derek works with me and a group of financial renegades with a company we call Tax Tutors, which works in much the same way Student Loan Tutor does helping taxpayers save considerable amounts of money on their taxes by understanding the rules of the game. He offers his services in the gift, meaning you could pay as much or as little as you are able and feel called when working with him, which makes him the only tax professional I know that works in this way. You could find him and more about him at taxtutors.com. I hope you enjoy this podcast. And if you know anyone or you need any help with taxes, feel free to reach out to Derek. And if you'd like to help out the show, uh, please go and give us a rating and a review in iTunes. It helps us a great deal in helping spread awareness around these important topics. Enjoy the show. All right. Welcome to Zeitgeist with Zeitgeist. I'm your host, Zeitgeist. And I'm here today with a friend of mine, uh, Derek Tennant, who I came into contact with. Uh, through Charles Eisenstein's work on economics. And uh, he was a godsend, really, uh, because he came across my path when I was in the process. Uh, A lot of you know that I I work helping student loan borrowers uh, qualify for uh, debt, uh, essentially debt forgiveness and understand the whole ins and outs of debt and the origins of debt and, uh, you know, why a lot of people feel that they're stuck in a state of some type of indentured servitude and uh, feel that they weren't put on the planet to do what they're doing and are kind of confused about why squirrels and birds and other animals uh, seem to, at least the wild ones, uh, are born more free than them. And uh, I, in that process of helping people with student loans, I was in the process of studying uh, IRS uh, 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 guidelines uh, for myself and for my clients. And I was in the process of becoming an enrolled agent, which is the highest uh, uh, designation the IRS gives, uh, but an independent one, not working for the IRS, but working for clients, working for my clients more in particular, uh, more specifically. And uh, all of us, and I I remember just reading through uh, dozens of hours of tax tax information, most of which is unnecessary for me, but you have to know it all. And uh, all of a sudden I get an email from Derek Tennant and uh, he says, hey, do you have any desire to bring in a uh, heart-centered, soul-based enrolled agent on board to help your clients working in the gift? And I said, oh my goodness, you have no idea how badly I would love to do that. So we've been working together on some, in some way ever since then. So welcome, Derek, to the show. Well, thank you, Zach. 
Thank you, and and wonderful introduction. That is exactly how we met, and uh, I felt like it was a godsend on my side, too, because I was so desperate to get away from the largest uh, tax preparation company in the country. They had totally burned me in the last tax season. I was looking for a way out and, and not sure how that was going to manifest itself, and sure enough, there it is, dropped in my lap, and, and it's been wonderful. I wish I would have done this a decade ago. Better late than never, I guess. <laughs> which, Better late than never. Which is so great to come into contact with Derek. Um, it's so often when you're working with numbers and finance and economics, uh, a lot of the, uh, essentially most of the people that get involved with those industries get involved with those industries because they're looking to build and accumulate wealth for themselves. And occasionally some weird quagmire in the system happens and somebody gets involved and either maybe they got involved in the beginning for security or maybe to get money or whatever, but their soul wouldn't allow them to use people's ignorance against them. And instead they focus on more altruistic aims of helping people navigate this system. And the minute they do that, all of a sudden, uh, at least my experience has been, oh my God, this system is super broken. Uh, it favors a very few people and people that essentially try to mirror those those people because essentially the people that it favors are the same people that support the money for the politicians that get these legislations passed. Uh, and I think that this call we're going to dive into, this podcast we're going to dive into some of this is because we're dealing with current time, uh, April 8th, 2020, uh, April 9th, 2020, April 9th, 2020, yes, April 9th. Uh, during the heat and peak so far of the COVID-19 virus in the United States. So there, if there's ever been a time uh, where there's been economic and growth uncertainty, GDP uncertainty uh, in the United States and in the global economy, uh, it is now. And uh, it reaches me at an interesting time where I'm in the process with my fiance Madeline of purchasing uh, 86 acres of farmland and sanctuary uh, on the big island of Hawaii uh, and uh, looking at putting land into a trust and all of these things, uh, qualifying for mortgages and seeing what's happening uh, in, the, in the world of economics and the, in the world of finance, which I believe that are, I believe the same as Novel Yuval Harari, uh, the anthropologist uh, that wrote Sapiens, that he says that our current religion is a religion of capitalism. Uh, that is the religion that supersedes all of the other sects. They're, they all agree on the fact that money works in this specific way. And here we go with our great religion, capitalism, being essentially brought to its knees uh, by something essentially invisible to the human eye. And I, I guess, Derek, you share a different opinion and a different sentiment about what's going on with, uh, with the COVID-19 uh, pandemic and its economic, uh, I guess, correlation. It's its economic correlation. How do you feel about what's going on with the with the with the world economy? Well, I feel like capitalism has caused uh, profit to be the number one end all be all uh, of our social relations, and it's clearly dividing us. It's clearly isolating us. It's clearly separating us from our heart and soul, and um, this COVID, uh, the, the reaction has been to increase the isolation rather than uh, bring us together socially and, and have us take care of each other, which I think is where the way we evolved as humans was taking care of each other. 
Um, we came out of a culture where uh, if anyone in the tribe was hungry, everybody was hungry. If anybody was full, everybody was full. And we've, we've gotten away from that. We've gotten now into this widening inequality, uh, which year by year gets wider and wider, the gap between the rich and poor. And at some point, that has to stop. You can't have infinite growth on a finite planet. And so my question has always been, what does that look like when when that inequality starts to narrow? And I was never able to project or forecast or um, uh, do a rain dance and cause the economy to come crashing down around our heads. Instead, it took a virus, and the virus has done that. It's It's making the economy crash down around our heads. And as Charles Eisenstein so eloquently says, there's a gap between the old story and the new story, the space between stories, and that's the space we're in right today, is this space between the old story and the new story. We can have lots of emotions and lots of reactions to what happens to us in our life, uh, but what is so important about each one of those is the story we tell ourselves about it. So we can make ourselves angry, we can make ourselves peaceful, we can make ourselves um, joyful, depending upon the story we tell about the same event, even though that same event happens to someone else and they see it differently, they tell a different story about it. And so what story do we tell about these times is very important, but more important is what story do we tell coming out of these times about our future. This is our chance to pause and think about what is real wealth. Real wealth is healthy relationships, healthy families, healthy communities, and healthy nature. And this culture, this capitalist economy is not about that. This capitalist economy is based on plastic. It's based on disposable. It's based on scarcity. There's not enough. We don't have enough money. Efficiency. And, and we're totally insufficient. You ha and competition. You have to fight for what's yours or fight for what you want or fight for what you need. And I see a world... It's the complete opposite of that. It's based on relationship, not product. It's based in abundance. We have enough if we, if we choose wisely. And it's based on taking care of each other rather than competing with each other. And that is in such stark relief right now as we... It's, it sounds like the difference. It does. It sounds like the difference between what your, our current economy and our current, uh, essentially, cosmology uh, that human beings, our story of the world is currently, to me it sounds like, it's currently a patriarchal uh, uh, world where the world is uh, kind of managed by the sword, power, and rationalism based on our understanding of the world and dominance of that and control. And then what we're moving maybe more into is more of a matriarchal where it's nurturance, uh, cooperation instead of competition, and, uh, uh, and care for, stewardship of, husbandry of. It's not just feminine. Matriarchy doesn't mean... Uh, that it's for women and that men are left out. Uh, Carl Jung so eloquently put that within every man is his anima, and to the degree that a man is not uh, aware of his anima, or his anima is locked in the unconscious, so to speak, is that uh, he will become more and more rigid, more and more ruthless, and more and more disconnected. And I think the greatest uh, representation of somebody that's completely ruthless, ruthless and disconnected from others is the modern-day successful, independent, entrepreneur, businessman, uh, uh, or that, that also mirrors a very socio uh, sociopathic or even psychopathic uh, uh, essentially value system. That's what's held up and that's who our, that's who our current economic system 
rewards. I don't think it was intentional from the beginning that that's how it would work, but that's essentially the direction. The boat may maybe sailed out. They say the road to hell is paved in good, with good intentions, but again, maybe the, the sailboats to hell when it went out at sea, you know, maybe in the beginning, right out of the docks, you know, Adam Smith and Wealth of Nations might have had the best, of, best intentions for that invisible hand, uh, but as power becomes absolute, uh, the systems and structures begin to empower the very thing that's the most destructive. And I think we all have the time and the leisure now. Uh, maybe it's pretty uncomfortable, but we're in that space, uh, straddling that space in between stories and being invited in to an initiation of sorts into a different way of being in the world. And it's an important time for us to see what story is alive within us that wants to be lived out. And for a lot of people, uh, this is, the first thing hitting them are these financial elements. They're, they've been told that not only have they, 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 not only do they have to pay their bills, uh, but they also at the same time are, are, are not able to work. It's almost like I know a lot of people I grew up in the projects and a lot of people that I knew got charged with felonies. And, uh, and they're told that they need to work in order to like, be on parole or whatever and uh, not get in trouble. And they need to obviously work in order to do things that are legal as opposed to illegal to earn money. Uh, but at the same time, nobody will hire them because they have this criminal, so they're, the criminal background. So they're stuck in a place where they both cannot work and must work. Uh, and I think a lot of people are in that position right now where they're saying, hey, you have to pay your rent or you've got to pay your bills, you've got to buy food or you've got to you know, teach your kids at home and your husband or your boyfriend or whoever's there too. And all of your complexes, you know, all of your, it's like a time bombs happening uh, in people's homes right now. And uh, you're being told that you can't work and you still have to pay everything. And it's adding, you know, fuel to the fire. Do you want to speak a little bit to maybe what's going on with all of the people, all of the people calling you, Derek, to get help with how to, ma how to navigate this CARES Act and the stimulus and how to keep their businesses in business by these, you know, loans and grants that the government's offering? Well, it's, it's so incredibly nuts that um, uh, a hedge fund can get in trouble. This happened in mid-March. A hedge fund can get in trouble because it made some, some poor judgment calls, invested a lot of money, got, and leveraged it, and, and got themselves into a hole. And the macroeconomist of Citadel tends to, or happens to be Ben Bernanke, and he picks up the phone in, at noon and makes a call to the Federal Reserve, and all of a sudden, by close of business, his hedge fund has been bailed out by the government. And you contrast that with trying to get $1,200 per person to some of the people, not all of the people, because not everybody files a tax return. And clearly, the people that don't make enough money to have to file a tax return probably need the money more than anyone. And yet we stumble over getting that money out to them and it's going to be $1,200 and it may come, may not come out until July if they have to mail you a check. And we just can't seem to get our priorities straight. We can't seem to get our priorities straight, not only about the tax situation, but also about the, the money in general. Um, and by that, I mean, you've got these people that are not working. They have to pay rent or mortgage payments. How are they going to do that? We see, we've seen for years what happens in India when farmers take out loans and then can't repay the loan because the crop was bad. It's interesting that you say rent or a mortgage payment. It's interesting that you say rent or a mortgage payment because I, I think a lot of people think that if you buy a house that you're no longer renting, but you are renting. You're renting on better terms with a bank that may leave you some asset someday, but you're still renting. 
a hundred years ago, uh, Silvio Gazelle wrote a book in 1917 called Natural Economic Order, and he would consider uh, absolutely, without question, it's not even a question that if you have a mortgage, that's rent, that's economic yes. rent. Uh, if you don't don't have the ability to grow your own food, you are renting food. You are renting a food supply chain, which is that upcharge mark that you're paying for food. So you're renting food, you're renting a house, even if you're paying a mortgage. A lot of people are paying a mortgage. Are like, you know, I'm okay. You know, I'm doing well, and you know, it's those, you know, the people that are renting that are doing so poorly. But you're just renting from the bank as well. So I just wanted to I, chime absolutely. in there. And from my perspective, the housing, the healthcare, and the food are the three primary things that we need to solve if we're going to come out of this uh, with any kind of culture left, with any kind of health. And if you look at the healthcare piece, so we are having people who are very, very sick before they get to the hospital because they didn't have insurance. We still have tens of millions of, of people in this country, in America, that don't have health insurance. Even the ones who have health insurance are frightened by how much it's going to cost them to go to a doctor, even if they are very sick with this potentially fatal disease. And the longer people hold off to go to, to get care, then the greater risk is they're going to, con they're going to uh, be contagious and, and spread this around the country. And that's what we're seeing. And I think this is one of the reasons that we saw such a quick monetary response to the corporations uh, through the stimulus package was that the people at the top are realize they are just as vulnerable as anybody else. They go to parties and they have social contacts and, and they get social physically close and they are as much at risk from this virus as anybody. And I think it's finally sinking in how much at risk they are. And that's why they, demanded of their politicians, which they own lock, stock, and barrel, uh, that something be done and that some something be, be handed out to the folks to keep the pitchforks and torches from showing up at the doorstep. And so that's the health piece. The, um, uh, the uh, loan piece, when you have a mortgage, you have rent, you have those housing costs, what about all the people that are unhoused? How are we going to take care of that? Now, there's been some movement to bring those people who are unhoused into shelters, into hotels. Um, that's great. Why did it take uh, a virus to, to get us to take care of our fellow human beings? You know, that, that's kind of my point, is we needed to be taking care of these people all along. We were doing a very poor job of it. This just puts it in our face. It's the, uh, I think it's the idea... It's the idea of, aesthetic, uh, of uh, uh, I think it's, gosh, um, I want to say aesthetism, aesthetics, not aesthetics, is that the word I'm looking for? Uh, no, that's not the word. I, the word's escaping me right now. It's the idea that, uh, that they should pick themselves up by yes. the bootstraps and they're just it's kind the, of lazy and irresponsible. Work ethic. And it's this Calvinistic mindset of like, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I've pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I also wanted the day off. I've never taken a day off in my life. I've never done a, a thing a, a thing I've ever wanted to do in my whole life. You know, and these people are just being picky. Why don't they go out there and just dig ditches or something? Except that even the people that have been successful, like you said, Zach, they depended upon uh, there being people willing to pay for roads to let their employees come to work and education so their employees didn't have to be taught how to read in order to do their job. And insurance, so that if something bad happens, they they have a chance to to keep the business going. And a legal system that protects their intellectual property or gives them a way to sue if they're damaged or 
So, you know, so they depend upon all these other pieces. They didn't do this on their own. Nobody builds anything completely separately on their own. And so we need just a little more acknowledgement of how much we depend upon each other. And I mentioned food being the other piece. I have a real concern that um, we are going to have food issues here because the supply chain is being disrupted to some degree or another. If you look at the stats about the trucking industry, uh, trucking industry is having problems like every other business today. And we could get to a point where it's hard to keep food on the shelves. And, and in a country where there's more guns than people, that could turn out to be very ugly. And I just, uh, you know, that's a, I hope it doesn't turn to that. And I certainly am not hoping for that. But um, I just worry about the food situation a month or two from now. Yeah, I, I had hoped for a long time that there would be some way to distribute our resources better to where, you know, uh, currently 65 individuals have more wealth than 50, the bottom 50% of the entire world. Uh, I mean, that's not that they're that much more valuable to the human, to the human species or to the mm-hmm. world, because it's not just about humanism. It's like, mm-hmm. how, what, are these, what are these 65 individuals doing? In many cases, the people that I personally know in my, li- my life, and I know I have my own unique sample size, and it's not representative of everybody's situation and not everybody that has wealth or money is doing terrible things but in most cases i have found that people that have a lot of wealth hoarded uh most of them there's some type of you know manipulation dishonesty that's been present throughout that uh process now again it's not a hundred percent i'm not saying everybody that that has wealth or that has accumulated wealth is doing that by any degree it's a lot of responsibility for someone that has accumulated wealth to be moving that wealth. And that's been the, the job of tribe ch- uh, ch- uh, chiefs of tribes is that they were actually the poorest person of the whole tribe because the, they would never let the goods, this was the idea of a potlatch, they would never let the goods sit with them. Their whole goal was to figure out how to distribute the wealth that was coming from the creator into the tribe. The tribe didn't know what to do with it, so they were going and giving it to the chief, and the chief was supposed to have this deep understanding and deep relationships and be an elder and know where, where best to put the resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, the chief wouldn't sit there and try to figure and, and hoard all the wealth. And then from their position of power of being the chief, figure out how to get even more wealth from the, from their tribe, uh, you know, and then figure out ways to get even more wealth from other tribes. If that were to happen, I forget which tribe it was. I was just, I was just either listening to, I was actually listening to this on the Jung platform uh, by a famous, uh, a famous Jungian, analyst and he says that there was something uh, that would happen in this situation and they would uh, they had a name for it which I can't remember where the it would generally be a man almost always I think it was exclusively men uh, not to bash on men but uh, it was almost exclusively men and it was when the men in the tribe would begin to hoard everything hunt and kill an animal and then eat whatever they wanted from it and then leave the rest so they didn't have to share uh, and then start sleeping with all of the women and lying and then they would take this person hunting, you know, with them. The tribe would gather together and take this person out hunting with them. And when they come back, that person wouldn't be with them anymore. That was their cure for this, uh, whatever. I can't remember the term of it. I know that uh, one tribe called it the Watiko, uh, the Watiko spirit, and I could be butchering a little bit. Another one called it the Wendigo spirit. I read that in Robert Wall Kimmerer's book. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, they're essentially, but our whole economic system and, and, and what we hold up in high regard is this type of behavior. We're, it's almost like we're saying if you could be more like this, you will be rewarded with this idea of success. And if you don't do that, then, uh, 
then it's proof that by your fruits you shall know them. And fruits are limited to just money at this point. It's overly simplified as opposed to this health that you had spoken of, which is far more well-rounded. And this is, you know, it goes back to the American dream, right? The, the fact that I can be a self-made man. I can, I can start a business and, and make lots of money and, and uh, take care of my family well. I have done a lot of tax returns for uh, individuals and families, couples, uh, that are in the 5% in america and they are no more happy in fact i would say they are less happy than people that make in in the bottom 30 percent uh because they they are afraid they're going to lose their wealth afraid they're going to come into hard times and and it seems typical too that um people when they have income they figure out a budget and they manage to spend a good portion if not all of their money and so they don't always have a lot to fall back on if times get tough. And so they have just as much worry and just as much concern as anybody else. They still have drug addiction. They have domestic violence. They have all kinds of issues. They get cancer, whatever. They, they aren't special in any of those regards. And so they clearly aren't happier because of their wealth. And what we've seen over the last 40 years with wages not going up is for the um, bottom 50% is that um, people just, you know, it's a struggle and, and people do already rely on their neighbors to help take care of them. If they get sick and can't work for three days, they're going to need help paying the rent. And so they're relying on their social network to be able to help them with that process, take care of them when they're sick help them get back on their feet if something happens. If they lose a job and can't find a new one, they need that support system to keep them going. I just think that this is a great opportunity for us to see millions, and I do mean tens of millions of people not being able to work, needing to find that kind of support in their community. And I just hope that as we come out of this and we think this the worst of this is over and we can get back to quote-unquote normal, that we start to analyze what got us through that and what will get us through these next three months is people taking care of each other. And how do we start to encode that into the new story? But what about social distancing? Aren't we, sup well, aren't we let, supposed to be social let's, distancing? Let's not be being very, social with, our, with everyone around us let's by Let's be law? very careful with our language because right now we may benefit from being physically distant we may benefit from being six feet physically away from other people, but we need to be more socially connected today than ever before. And I've been participating the last couple of weeks, both facilitating, hosting, and participating in Zoom calls online. Uh, groups of people, a few dozen people in one case, coming together on a regular, even daily basis as a support group. And so talking out, do you need anything? Are you okay? Do you have something you can offer someone who has a need? Starting to come in and just feel like I'm being held, I'm being helped. I have, the op I have a community here. I have a neighborhood online, even though we're not physically close. Still, if something were to go wrong, I would have someone I can fall back on, someone I can ask for help. Expanding our sense of tribe by doing calls like this, like on Zoom, uh, especially not to endorse Zoom, but the technology has gotten to the point where it can support us. 
if we use it properly. These these thoughts go through my mind, and I think it's so deeply programmed into us, is how do I, quote unquote, capitalize on whatever is going on so that I know I'm going to be okay? And I, I totally felt that go through my mind. The minute I heard about COVID, I said, okay, you know, shit, I need to figure out a way, first of all, not to catch this. Uh, I started isolating myself early, uh, physically isolating myself. Uh, I bought enough food for everybody that's on, I'm living on a 86 acre farm in Hawaii. Um, and so I'm blessed in the fact that we have fresh water, access to fresh water, both from the rain and from a river that's filtered. I have hydroelectric power. Again, I'm extremely blessed and in a very unique situation. And this just happened that, you know, this is one of these synchronicities that I found mm -hmm. myself here. Uh, and then I happen to have extra face masks because nurses lived in this house before me and just left brand new N95 face masks in here. Uh, and, uh, so here I was in this situation and I, I felt like I need to make sure that I, me and those around me are okay. And, uh, uh, made sure we had enough food for a couple months, uh, which again, if everybody did the same thing I did, I thought that of that at the same time. Like, what if everybody got a couple months worth of food, you know, then there would be no food. So here we are in this, in this strange situation. I, of course, justified it that we have a man that we're helping, you know, on this land that we're working with who's 72, has some respiratory issues as well as some heart issues uh, and uh, from, a, from a sickness he had as an, as an infant. And uh, so I said, okay, I have to make sure that we have what we need to not leave the farm so that we could keep his health. And again, a lot of people didn't have this, this uh, ability. They work in the stores where I went to mm -hmm. go shopping, you know, and, uh, and here we are again where there's a total, like, real unfairness uh, among the people that, I mean, there were times in my life when I was young where I wouldn't have had enough food for tomorrow or the next day, you know, enough money for food to, to last me the next day. I'd be hustling for whatever I could for that specific Absolutely. day, not having a, a actual home that is mine. I'm like, like a guest on somebody's couch or something in my, my teen years. So uh, there's a lot of people that, you know, just because COVID hit and my life has changed, they're still in that situation. And I so often don't think about that, even that part of my life or that there's, you know, billions of people that are in that situation to one degree or another. In other countries where the whole country is poor and uh, essentially, you know, as, uh, as uh, gosh, what is his name? Perkins John Perkins. Wrote Economic Hitman. He John talks Perkins. about how, yeah, yeah, John Perkins. And, uh, you know, there's, there's countries where, the, where everybody's pretty much poor except for a very small, a small group of elite. And they have, yeah, they might be poor, but they, some of them have, you know, they're able to grow their own food a little bit or they're, they actually work in community where the poor people in our country, a lot of them don't work in community. They're like, you know, crabs in a bucket is how I felt. Uh, everybody's stabbing each other in the back uh, to try to get out of the hood. Uh, and uh, I ended up, it ended up being what freed me from where I grew up is because I got burned so many times and, uh, you know, even physically attacked. Uh, so eventually those relationships fell away and that was my initiation to into a different world that was maybe even more cutthroat, which was the business world. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I felt uh, compelled to go that direction. I don't know how far offline from where I picked up I've, I've dropped off, but I'm going to go ahead and drop okay. the flag right here. So I want to pick it up. Yes, <laughs> fine, no problem. And, and I appreciate you presencing the other countries because... Um, 
Africa's having to deal with this and they don't have the uh, economic means or the educational means to really talk to people about social distancing or to do anything stimulus-wise for the economy. They don't have the healthcare system in place to be able to handle even more than a few dozen people sick with the, and needing a ventilator. And so, as is always the case, it's the people who are least able to deal with the problem that will be hit the hardest. And so, we can't just focus entirely on America. We also have to have some compassion and some concern for other places around the world. And I also want to presence, we kind of danced around it a little bit earlier, and that is the emotional toll of this, not just the economic toll. Having economic difficulties layers an entirely different type of angst on top of what people uh, do and how they feel. And this is what drives people to drink more or use more drugs or beat on their spouse or be emotionally abusive. Um, and again, we we need to be taking care of all of our people in all of the ways we need to be taken care of, whether that's food, housing, health care, emotional care, mental health care. Um, you may have heard that um, uh, a lot of states have asked for help from the federal government. They've asked FEMA to come in and help. And what FEMA is providing in most cases is uh, access to crisis counseling. They're doing some stuff around trying to supply hospitals with with medical equipment, um, trying to help kick into unemployment uh, in different states. But a big part of what they're doing for the people. So so just so so people know about FEMA with, with you, Derek, is when Derek's not working in the gift, helping people understand and how to navigate the tax system and not get completely robbed by their uh, essentially ignorance of the, I mean, planned ignorance it's not it's not anyone's fault that they don't understand how the tax system works there's what how many pages of tax code are there derek seven feet uh, seven feet on the on the seven shelf. feet is does that include the tre treasury regulations that are also no. affect the tax code no no so that's just seven feet of tax code but it's ignorance is no excuse you have to file correctly right under penalty well, this, of law this uh, this culture does not educate us about finance in any way, shape, or form. We don't understand where money comes from. We don't understand what interest is. We don't understand exponential growth. We don't understand how to do a tax return. We hardly know how to balance a checkbook. And that doesn't happen because of the educational system. That that happens because we have to figure it out or, or we have By to... By checkbook, do you mean Venmo? What's a checkbook? Yeah, what's a checkbook? <laughs> in in exactly. our age, in the, in the, in the, I'm in showing the millennial age, age I'm showing what is a checkbook? Age. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so when you're not doing that, you're uh, you're working. You've been working with FEMA for a long time. For a long time in the individual assistance uh, part. So after a disaster is declared, if there's a need for housing or property repair replacement for people to be able to live, or temporary housing while their home gets re, uh, re repaired or or replaced, um, there's potentially money there from the government to help with that. And I'm in, in the cadre that gets out in the field and actually talks to people about that process because, believe it or not, getting money from the government is neither quick nor easy. And one thing I want to say about that whole experience, I've been doing that since 2004, is that FEMA money is good. It's helpful. It doesn't reach everybody. The system is not perfect. 
and it's geared more towards the people who own property rather than the people who don't. And the real healing after disaster happens with neighbor helping neighbor. I can tell you a story about a small town after Hurricane Ivan on the Alabama uh, border with Florida, and it was kept please alive. Do. Huh? I'm sorry, say again? I said, please do. <laughs> There's so, a delay in, in sound. Please do. Okay. Um, so this town was kept alive after Ivan by a church in Tennessee that would uh, twice a week for six weeks filled up a semi-tractor trailer with blankets and food and water and tents and clothes and sent it to this one particular town. And it's that kind of neighbor reaching out and helping their neighbor that gets us through and, and helps us heal after some traumatic event. And so think about that in your own life, where you've had a traumatic event, a sickness or a death in the family or something. And the people that helped you get over that, it wasn't the life insurance money coming in. It was the people who showed up with food. It was the people who held you and let you cry on their shoulder. Is that kind of, that's where the healing happens, is not because the life insurance paid off. And so that's a lesson that we could extrapolate out into our whole economy and say, is it really our goal in life, is the reason we're on this planet at this time is to make the most money we can? I would argue that's absolutely the wrong path to be taking. The right path to be taking is how do we build community relationships, take care of each other, take care of the nature uh, in which we live and on, upon which we depend, because everything we eat comes from nature and everything we use to build a house comes from nature and so how do we make sure that we can still continue to do that seven generations into the future i think that's a handy way to look at it um but that's that's not even sustainable what's sustainable is make it so that we can live without um without totally destroying the nest completely yeah, you know, I even want to take it even a step further, uh, not to just, uh, not to uh, say that we don't want to focus on the next seven generations. So often we hear in our time now, as they say, the best thing we could possibly do is be zero emissions or have a zero carbon footprint. You know, leave no trace. You know, you go to a festival or there, you know, there is no away. You know, like if you throw something away, like it goes somewhere. There's, you know, when we dump something that goes and piles an ugly mess somewhere else that we just don't see. And a lot of these countries just, I, I spent some time in India and I'm sure, and there's likely some very beautiful places that I didn't go to any of those really. I mean, I went to Goa, I was pretty, but I went to the big cities, New Delhi and Mumbai and, uh, and the trash system, like when plastic and everything else hit India, Prior to that, India had a really high population, but they, everything was compostable. They used banana leaves or, or uh, coconut shells for cups. And, you know, if something got thrown on the ground, it just became soil. Uh, the challenge is, is that uh, all of plastic and industry moved to India all at once before their infrastructure could be put in place. And so the same habits of uh, people that were working and running all over the place, uh, there was no trash to throw, so they just throw it on the ground. And then now it piles up and everybody looks around, they go, well, I feel pretty silly throwing my thing away when the, there's a, you know, three feet of garbage all around me everywhere and there's cows eating plastic bottles. And, and, and some people say, well, India or Indians are so you know, filthy, look at how filthy everything is. And it's like, well, this is a product of uh, total growth with no consideration of the culture 
or the environment or the population or how they're going to pay back this debt or where the power structure is going to be held in very few people. And these slums, you'll have somebody landing a helicopter on this building on top. That person that, you know, I, I remember going into one of these places. I say, well, who's the owner of this beautiful place? This is the nicest place I've seen. Oh, he's not here. And I'm like, oh, well, where is he? Oh, he has like seven or eight houses. I'm like, good Lord, what does he do? They go, oh, he's a politician. And I'm like, well, politician's supposed to be for the people, but the people here are really suffering, and he's got seven or eight houses, and he's not even at this one. This is so bizarre. And I'm standing on that balcony, and it's the only nice place I went to from the perspective of, you know, nice in the modern sense, in the Western modern sense. But I'm standing there on the balcony and in this high-rise overlooking slums, all below. And I said, this is, this high rise is built on the backs of these slums. Like, like this is, ex this is the extracted wealth of these people, you know, held up here. And how do you ignore, uh, what's happening at the bottom of that hill? There's a, a great book, very short, it's like a 10 minute read called the ones who walked away from Omulus that kind of talks about this effect. Yeah. I, uh, I feel like I went down one of these portals again. I'm going to pass down the, no, put down the flag no worries, for no you, worries. Derek. <laughs> but you know, you we, you started off talking about climate, and and I just want to put out. Oh, leave no you know, trace. I'm, I'm, yeah, I feel like we could improve. Absolutely, we could improve the environment where we look at human beings are not a cancer, like they say in the Matrix. Like uh, maybe they act like a cancer right now, but we could. I've seen people build beautiful things and do beautiful art and build beautiful relationships where. Uh, and I think that I'm a testament to that in some degree. I used to be a lot more of an asshole than I am now and not feel connected. And as I cultivate the, the aspects of myself that I feel brings more joy to my life, I actually become more joyful and it begins to spread. Uh, and I see farms where they take you know, wildland and wildland is beautiful. And I see them improve even upon wildland, like human, human ingenuity working together with nature and with other human beings and with our technologies can create absolute heaven on earth if we wanted to, if we took all of this effort that we are doing to protect ourselves with gloves and face masks and social distancing worldwide. If instead we said, hey, we're going to all garden and grow and become sovereign and heal all of the tra trauma and help those that are in need around us, and we all just decided that in unison, the entire economic system would change. And the entire world would change. Entire climate would change almost overnight. And the thing that I want to highlight about what you just said, I agree with it completely, but I want to highlight the lack of a plastic consumption in that model. And not just the consumption of plastic, but the consumption of energy. Because it's all well and good to talk about a Green New Deal and talk about solar panels and wind turbines and stuff like that. But if you've seen what it takes to put together a wind turbine... That is a lot of mountaintop removal and a lot of toxic refining and a lot of slave labor. And if you look at solar panels and batteries, oh my God, you know, we have, we have right around 20 million electric vehicles in the world today, 20 million. And we have 1.2 billion internal combustion engines. If we get to even 600, uh, 600 billion, I'm sorry, 600 million electric vehicles, that's a whole lot of battery. Do you know that the Tesla, the entire floorboard, more than a thousand pounds is battery? More than a thousand pounds of battery on every Tesla car. That is a lot of lithium, a lot of coltan, a lot of cobalt, a lot of all these minerals that come out of the ground. As long as it's happening in somebody else's continent, 
then we don't care. It's not part of our world. We don't, we don't process it. We don't understand what it takes to build a thousand pound battery for every car and try to do that 600 million times. And that's not sustainable. That does not leave us with a healthy environment. That is not what we need. Well, I think we forget because we don't see what's happening. We don't see what's happening in these countries that are doing the mining and the manufacturing. It's hidden from us. If we did see it, it would be very difficult to be really. It'd be ha- it'd be difficult to be happy standing on that balcony, looking down at the slums, and making that connection. And that's ultimately what intelligence is. It's a sensitivity and ability to make multiple forms of connection. To be able to see, hey, me sitting up here in this high rise with seven other houses just like this is why these other people don't even have, they have a cardboard roof, you know? Uh, and in this case, uh, I'm driving a Tesla, which may be better than driving a H1 Hummer around, but it doesn't mean that, that, that you're doing something, you know, super benevolent. Most people can't afford a Tesla, you know, to, to start with. And secondly, there are costs. Maybe it's not gasoline burning fuel down the road, uh, but some of it's coming on the, you know, if you're not off grid, some of it's coming from the grid. Uh, and also we have to ask ourselves a question, why do we need to go so many places? And like, why, why do we need to drive so far to get to where we want to go or what we feel comfortable with? Uh, and, uh, and why are we driving so far that we need something to drive for us? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like where, wh- wh- and why do we have so many cars? Like, why does everybody have one? Some people have two, three cars for one person. You know, and this is this old model of being in the world. Everybody's got their own their own refrigerator, their own kitchen, their own lawnmower, mm-hmm. their own fax machine, their own everything. Sometimes mm-hmm. two of them. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes people have two or three iPhones. You know, because they never got rid of the old one. You know, or they have one and, for work uh, and one for the second job and one for home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Very our much. tax system rewards that. Right, so you know you have to have another car for business because if you use a percentage of it for personal, then you lose some of the write-off or whatever. So it actually the tax system even rewards uh, more wastefulness, essentially. And I want to point out that some percentage, and I don't know what the number is because it's it's happened so quickly. Some percentage of uh, people, especially I'm I'm here in in Silicon Valley, California. Uh, close to Apple, Google, Facebook, all of the high-tech giants. And some percentage of our workforce is now working from home and figuring out that that is a doable proposition, that they don't have to go back to an office, they don't have to deal with a commute. And so we have seen just in the last few weeks that we can change overnight. We can change how we operate overnight. And I take a lot of hope in that because I think we can have more conversations like you and I are having right now and start to focus on what's important. What is real wealth? And not the fiat currency, um, not the stock market. What is real wealth, real food, real housing, real medical care, real education? How do we get to those things? And how do we build relationships so that when we get sick, somebody will be willing and able to take care of us? And that's what I see as being the, the real benefit from this, is if we can change and put our focus in a different place, away from the fiat currency and onto something that's real, that's then we then we will come out of this better than when we went in. And of course, I think that's what everybody wants is to come out better than before. What's really interesting too that I wanted to touch on, Derek, is that you had mentioned that we don't see what's happening in these other countries because it's not directly affecting us. But right now, we're witnessing 
something super small happening in Wutan, China that is affecting the rest of the world. We're realizing that Wutan, China is connected to the United States, is connected to Hawaii, is connected to, you know, Britain, it's connected to, you know, Australia. It's, we're all connected. We're all in this fish aquarium together. And I think we forget that, that if, you know, even if all the pollution is in, you know, one side of the aquarium, if it gets too polluted, it'll eventually reach its way over to us. You know, people in the polluted side might be wearing, they were wearing face masks way before we were in Wutan, China. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm here in Hawaii and I was at Home Depot, I don't know, three months ago. And uh, they were almost sold out of face masks. And I'm like, what the hell? Why are you guys almost sold out of face masks? I'm allergic to mold. So I bought some face masks to clean the mold uh, in, in my house where I'd moved in. And uh, I realized that there was already face masks here, but I didn't know that yet. I stumbled across those later. But I went to find face masks, and all the face masks that work to, to get mold out uh, are the same, those N95 or whatever it was. And um, yeah, they were buying a bunch of uh, Chinese and Japanese tourists that were coming over to Hawaii from Japan and China were buying them all up because you couldn't even get them out there. Uh, and I, for whatever reason, didn't find that super weird. I just like, oh yeah, of course, China's super polluted. Of course, everybody's wearing face masks. Like it became normalized to me that yeah, of course, China is like so the air is so dirty you can't see you know ten feet in front of you. Yeah, that's totally just acceptable and normal. It's like the frog getting boiled. Uh, uh, in a pot. I remember when I was a kid, my family would go crabbing and they would boil crabs alive and then like warm the pot up slowly. And it just seemed, I mean, looking back on it now, it seems like extremely cruel. But uh, essentially that's what's, all, that's what's happening to us with all of these, you know, misdistributions of wealth, uh, people no longer working in, you know, professions that their family members worked in. You know, everybody's doing just work that they can't even relate to one another once they meet in the house. They're just in families for economic reasons, really. Uh, and then everybody just moves out and gets their own house and repeats the process, you know, once they're, once they're done. And uh, in Utah, where I spent the last five years, the air quality there has gotten so bad over such a long period of time that, again, it's totally normal. They don't even wear face masks. They just breathe in the crappy air. And there's a little thing that pops up on the freeway that says, air quality is really bad. You know, make sure you carpool or stay home. But it's like, what do you mean stay home? Like, like oh, someone's like driving. Imagine someone's driving to work and like, oh, the sign says stay home. Well, I was going to go to work, but, you know, I'm just going to stay home now. It, it's not an option. Like, it's, it's, it's a joke almost, you know? It's like those... You know, uh, the only reasonable, they would have these, also these signs, the only reasonable goal, zero fatalities, the only reasonable goal, as if making the goal to have zero fatalities on the freeway somehow leads to less fatalities on the freeway. Like, that doesn't help. Like, what, what, what helps is, I think, people to witness their soul will not, I hope that coming out of this uh, COVID thing is that people's soul will not let them return to work that is not serving of them, of their soul. And that they'll say, see, maybe how dysfunctional some of their relationships and their lives are as they're forced to be in them, in their house, and really work on getting the therapy or spending more time together to work through there and repair those relationships. If, there's, if the only reason you're having that relationship is for economic reasons, that's the reason the relationship's struggling. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so many people, and I, I'm not blaming anybody that's in that situation. You know, I've, th There's been many times in my early life where I said, man, I wish that I could just, you know, find a girlfriend that had a good job too and that we could just, you know, have it easier so I'm not having to pay all the bills myself. And I find so often that I think people get in these relationships just, just to survive economically because the system rewards 
people that have dual incomes. I mean, that's definitely the case. And it, you almost need it. You almost need dual incomes to Airbnb out one of your rooms, to Lyft drive as a, you know, this new term of side hustle. Like all these things are becoming normal. And I, and I fear on the worst side that we come out of this COVID virus and instead now people are more germaphobic. Nobody is going to public gatherings. People are wearing plastic gloves and, fa gloves and face masks everywhere. Uh, people have more side hustles and even more things accumulated and hoarded out of fear of another one, as opposed to the opposite, which is a more beautiful world where people are working together in community, living together, contributing to one another. So I think we really get to choose. This is a choose your own adventure story and we get to, we get to really choose which one we're going to do. And I think that that leads very well into um, the world that the indigenous First Peoples uh, lived in when there was no technology, where they had a relationship with the plants and they had a relationship with the water and they called it Sister Moon. And, and they didn't see themselves as separate. They didn't see themselves as alone. They saw themselves as just another node in a, in a wide universe of energy and if quantum physics doesn't tell us anything it tells us that we are not separate there is no separation between you and me at the energetic level that's all it is is energy the universe is energy it the energy is different type and different uh, frequencies but it's all energy there's no tiny little particle that you can say this is me and not you and i'd love to have a conversation a whole conversation with you about that the, the whole quantum physics piece but it, it mirrors exactly what the indigenous perspective tells us, that we're all connected. We can't be separate. We, it's impossible to be separate. And I just hope we start to, to recognize that and live like that rather than the separation we're being forced into by the powers that be uh, using their old divide and conquer. Uh, don't be close to anybody. You need to do this by yourself. And that's exactly the wrong answer. We, we can't do this by ourselves. We have to do this together. Things are so separate right now. I feel I'm, I'm in a place in my life, Derek, where things feel so separate. I'm in Hawaii right now. I'm on an island, quite literally separate mm -hmm. in the middle of the ocean. Uh, uh, people are separating their, their hands with gloves and with face masks, and people are quarantined in their houses. Uh, I'm... I'm we're in the middle of buying this land, this 86 acres, uh, with the guy who's been stewarding this for the last 26 years and uh, grow, grew the whole lychee orchard here. And it's also an animal sanctuary here. Uh, and uh, we're filling out legal agreements mm -hmm. and there's operating agreements and there's memorandums of understandings and then there's this rule if this happens you've got to plan it out all in advance and then these are the tax implications i know i reached out to you and i said well how do they does is does the work that he did the past 26 years because it counted as his contribution is that taxable as the value basically it's just it's like by the time you're done doing all this stuff and you go to plant an avocado or something like you're exhausted mm -hmm. it's like i feel hamstrung by all of the minutia. And here I am with like a Zoom recorder and this new microphone and a MacBook Pro and this uh, wire. And I'm grateful for this because it allows me to connect. But at the same time, the amount of what, what human beings have to know in these abstract worlds in order to make enough money so that we could be able to get the things we need, which is food, shelter, uh, clothing and health, you know, mm -hmm. healthcare in case of emergency. By the time we're done 
getting enough money to, tr to, to use to get those things from those that already have them, uh, there's very little energy left. And I think a lot of people may be listening to this podcast going, wow, that's great, build community. But like, I'm, I don't even know I'm going to pay rent. Like, I, I, I don't have the rent money. My credit cards are maxed out. I've got 100 grand of student mm -hmm. loan debt or 40 grand of student loan debt. My mm -hmm. car's not paid off. I've got to make my car payment. My car insurance hasn't stopped. I can't, I can't freaking go anywhere because there's nowhere to go, but I still have to pay for a car insurance. I have health insurance, and my payments are based on what I made last year, but I'm not making that now. But then how do I readjust that? Nobody's answering the phone. Who do I turn to? I don't know who to call. Do I call my financial advisor? He's always trying to get more money out of me so that I could invest that to make even more money. Like Who actually has my best interest in mind? Every time I ask my accountant, they say text with my tax accountant. But then when I talk to them, they say check with a lawyer. But when I talk to a lawyer, they say check with my doctor. Talk to my doctor. He says, maybe you need a therapist to talk to a therapist. He says, you know, maybe you need a specialist. Like who the hell, where do I, like, can I go to some place where somebody knows and can I get some, uh, be able to root in and, and, and get some help here? Cause I was born as a human being without an instruction manual for the current world that I was born into. So for those of us that are going, what in the hell do I do? It was complicated enough before COVID. Now I just don't know. Uh, I don't know. What do you feel about that, Derek? And the people thinking that listening to this. This is the perfect invitation to build community, to come into community, to start to connect with other people in your building, on your block, in your neighborhood who are also having trouble with cover, coming up with the rent check or the mortgage payment. And, you know, start to build a movement to start to be the squeaky wheel with your but Bob, political but, but my neighbor Bob's an asshole, you know? Well, there's going to be some <laughs> of that, but, but I really think neighbor bob might not be such an asshole if you come to him out of curiosity and say hey bob how's this going for you you know it's not going real well for me what's it like for you and when you come at people with curiosity and don't come trying to teach them something or make them change their mind um often you find you have a lot more in common than you than you disagree on and again if we're back to i think so many people are going to have trouble paying rent there really needs to, there's a real invitation there for people to come together and try to get a solution to the rent crisis. And whether it's a rent strike, whether it's rent forgiveness, whatever that turns out to be, I can't predict. But there's a real need there. And again, this is the invitation to start talking with people in your neighborhood and start to build those relationships because I guarantee you there's a couple more people on your street that are having the same problems you are. And if you find it come together and start to help each other, that's the beginning of, of the change we need to see. Thank you, Derek. I remember hearing maybe five, six years ago, I didn't even know the term community. Uh, I didn't know what that meant. I thought it was a, a label for some type of thing you have on Facebook. Uh, a <laughs> group is a community. Uh, I didn't really know. I mean, there was a community center uh, when I was a kid. But usually if you went there... There were a bunch of tough kids there that would try to rob you or kick your ass. Uh, so I didn't really, that's what, that's what the community center was. I never made the connection even. Like, mm -hmm. and that's what, like, and then I went to a really crappy school and they said, you know, they had community really big on the, on the front of it. And I hated that school. People like brought guns to school and, you know, all sorts of crazy stuff. It was one of sure. the worst schools in the United States. Uh, and, uh, so I didn't really know what community meant. And, uh, I've heard it said that community is a group of people that are extremely indebted to one another uh, in a good way, in a positive way. They feel like they're receiving more 
than they could possibly give from each other. And I've learned some lessons in community too, some messy ones the past four years. I uh, accidentally or synchronistically or whatever started an ecstatic dance because I had discovered dance, which I never thought that I'd be so into. Uh, I had no idea. Like it was one of those things where I had reached a point in my life where I said, gosh, I don't know anything. Like everything I know sucks. I'm like almost like Jim Carrey in Yes Man. And I said, well, uh, I'm just going to say yes to everything that I haven't done that someone offers to me. And remember this woman that I was judging in my head, not wanting to judge her, but it was just the voice was automatically going on. Not audible, but, you know, the thinking voice mm -hmm. of trying to figure her out. And she probably hates men and probably hates me and looks at, is looking at me thinking I'm a bum because I'm wearing sweatpants and I haven't shaved in a week. You know, and I'm like, and I'm like why? And I, at the same time, I have the same internal dialogue. Why am I judging this woman for? Like, this doesn't make any sense. You know, I had the awareness to see that this was all happening. And then she ends up, uh, I end up talking to her. I said, oh, what are you writing? She's like, oh, I have my journal. And she ends up talking to me and she invites me, uh, this woman that I was totally judging, not wanting to, uh, invites me to go to uh, a dance, uh, uh, this what, what's called conscious dance. It's called soul motion, kind of like ecstatic dance. And I, you know, she's like, do you want to go to this dance? I'm like, oh, when? And she goes, oh, in like an hour. And I'm like wearing sweats and hadn't shaved, you know, and had just eaten, probably the worst possible time to do this thing. And I was like, wow, I really don't want to go to that at all, but I've tried everything else and that's something I would never do. Why not? I'll just do it. And it was super uncomfortable, but I learned so much from that process and I had no idea the amount of healing that was present. There's almost like the thing I wanted to do least that seemed the most uncomfortable, not uncomfortable because it was like painful. I wasn't like jumping to do a belly flop off a bridge or like going to do some drug that, you know, makes you go crazy for, you know, 24 hours uh, or whatever. But it was something that was uncomfortable, but benign, you know, like it, it like couldn't hurt me. And I just decided to do it. And it was through that thing that just seemed so alien through that otherness that I experienced the, some super deep healing. I ended up starting a dance because I realized how healing it was for me and I didn't have anything in Utah. And then that turned into a community through an illness that I had. And it was through my illness that a community formed around me. And, uh, and ever since then, it changed the way I operated in the world. It was almost by a form of grace. I, don't, I couldn't have figured it out on my own. Like I couldn't have bought a book, How to Build Community, 99 Steps to Build Community, and, and done what happened to me uh, by, by a little bit of action on my part. But I would say 1% action, 99% grace. But I did have to do that part. I had to go talk to the Bob, or in this case, uh, gosh, what was her name? Her name's totally escaping me. But I had to talk to her, the woman mm -hmm. that I didn't know that my mind was judging. And maybe that's somebody's neighbor, or maybe that's somebody's uncle. Maybe that's somebody in their house that you're currently in like a tiss with. It'd be like, look, I'm super frustrated. I don't even know why. Like, I just feel super annoyed, but I really want to work through this. And uh, this is a time to be with the discomfort and let it alchemize into something a lot more beautiful. That wouldn't happen without this forced quarantine happening around the world. So my 1% action and 99% grace was coming across and buying a copy of Charles's book, Sacred Economics. And that introduced the whole gift economy thing. And so when I was fishing around for something to do with my tax knowledge, um, and came across your podcast with Charles and, and talking about the need for, for tax knowledge. Um, what really lit off in me was the chance to do my own business to, and to do it using what I refer to as a gift ecology. And by that, I mean that unlike typical experience people have with tax preparers, 
most of them are uh, have a small window to make their money, and so the last thing they want to do is spend any extra time with any client, maybe giving advice or building a relationship. And and I want to put the relationship first. I always did that in my own tax business at uh, H&R Block. But I was getting a lot of pushback from management because I wasn't charging for my advice. And so I wasn't, it wasn't a comfortable situation on either side. And by making the relationship present or uh, primary, um, it, then that makes the product secondary. And I treat the product as a gift. So I will work with you and give you advice and build that relationship. And I only ask that you pay attention to the value I'm providing and reciprocate with a gift. And I think what makes me unique, probably the only person in the United States who's doing this right now, is I don't even ask that that, <laughs> that, that, so. that that gift come back to me. I want you to reciprocate with a gift. But I see gift as energy, and energy has to move uh, to stay viable. And energy that's stagnant um, is very problematic. And so I'm gifting my energy to you. If you gift it forward into some other situation, a neighbor who can't pay rent and, and you help them pay their rent or someone who needs rides to the hospital for their doctor's appointments and you give them rides, I don't even care what it looks like. I don't care to know. I don't need to know. I'm letting go of all the judgment about that's too much, that's too little. We have a relationship. I'll continue to work with you and help in any way I can. Um, as long as, And I'm trusting that you have the integrity to keep the gift moving. And if it moves back to me, great, because I do have costs, but it doesn't have to. And I'm not holding any judgment with any particular person about that. I just want the energy and the healing to happen because we are all connected. We are all one. And if any one of us who's been traumatized by economics, politics, religion, gender, whatever it happens to be, if we receive a little bit of healing, then everybody is better off. And that's the world I want to live in where we have healing going on people are not being harmed and traumatized anymore and we're there for each other we take care of each other we feed each other both physically mentally emotionally spiritually and and that's a world i want to live in that's a world i want to help build and i'm trying to role model that with my business yeah, I think it starts with each and every one of us to do that to the greatest degree that we can yeah. but to the greatest to the greatest degree that we can to be that change that we want to see you know, sometimes it's hard and you can't. And I, and I think part of the change that we need to see in the world is that you don't try to force yourself to change when, it's, when you're super resistant to it. It's really a, a gentle dance. You know, if uh, you have to honor yourself. A lot of people try to sacrifice themselves and their own health and their own, you know, their own soul for some ideal. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's really part of the problem. I think if people would stop doing that, uh, they, that the world would improve a great deal. That there's a deep intelligence to us moving in the direction of what really calls our heart and uh and sometimes what calls our heart is it, there's two it's we can't do all of it yet you know we want to work in 100 percent in the gift but we can't yet and some people you can and 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 if you can you then by all means do it but at, at the same time maybe you could only do that with some people uh or maybe you you know help one person you know and maybe that person's yourself maybe you you know, give yourself a break if you can. And uh, that seems to be the hardest person for me to love is myself. So, yeah, I guess it starts But you that. brought up soul. And I just want to, to close this out, I just want to say one more thing about that. And that is what we're here for, is to be in touch with our soul, to develop our soul, to evolve our soul. And 
when we fall prey to all of the distraction and all of the um, responsibilities to make money at any cost that get foisted on us by this culture, um, it's all meant to distract us from what we're really here to do. And what we're really here to do is to be in touch with our soul and to act from our soul, from our heart. And I think if we all start to pay just a little more attention to that, this is going to be a much more beautiful world. And that's what we want. If people believe that they had a, if they, if people believe they had a soul and had that actual experience of having a soul, I think the world would be a lot, a lot more, uh, a lot more beautiful. Absolutely. I think we've lost that. We've lost soul. Hey, thank you so much, Derek. Oh, my pleasure. I love working with you. Thank you for being on the podcast. I know we've talked about doing this for a long time. And uh, we, we could, could talk, talk for a lot of time. time. Yeah. And, uh, Thank you so much, Zach. I appreciate yeah. you and all you do. Thank you. Thank you, Derek. Thank you so much for listening. And please follow us to hear future episodes where we discuss topics such as alternative states of consciousness achieved through dance, intention, and shamanic practices, sacred economics, dream work, trauma healing, building community, permaculture, healthy and compassionate living and eating practices, somatic and alternative healing modalities politics, psychology, mythology, and more. Our work is focused on the liberation of spirit, a return to the sacred, which is a constant collective inquiry. We aim both in person and on this podcast to plant and water the seeds of liberation from economic inequality, trauma, systemic conditioning, addiction, loss of soul, loss of meaning, hopelessness, helplessness, isolation, shame, nightmares, guilt, and a return to glimpses of your birthright, of dignity, joy, community, collaboration, equality, and constantly beautifying new world where you are not alone. And always, if you're ever in the Salt Lake City area, come join us for yoga, dance, or in the garden. A community of beautiful souls are here to welcome you. We gather in community Wednesday, 6 p.m. till 10 p.m. and Sunday, 11 to 3 p.m. And we have a vegan brunch or vegan dinner after every event. Our gatherings are all ages and are of no religious affiliation. We look forward to seeing you.